please take your Bibles and turn to the last book of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 16. We will be reading the entire chapter as we continue our study of this book. Revelation chapter 16, we come this morning to what is commonly known as the Battle of Armageddon. What is Armageddon? We're going to look at that this morning together. Revelation chapter 16. And I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. They have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. They are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Children, have you ever seen a dam before? A dam is a structure that's designed to hold water back in order to um, control flooding, uh, to store water, uh, to produce electricity or to generate electricity. One of the most famous dams in the world is the Hoover Dam in, in Nevada. Maybe you've been there before and seen it. At its maximum capacity, the Hoover Dam can hold 
trillion gallons of water. That's a lot of water. I thought that when I water my yard on Wednesday, Friday, and Sunday, because we do it on the right days, right? Um, when I water my yard and it uses 700 gallons, I thought that's a lot of water. 9.3 trillion gallons of water. Now, if you broke that dam, imagine the devastation that there would be to anything in the path of that water. I bring this up because there's a sense in which God's wrath is currently being held back. You can picture it like a dam. In fact, in Romans chapter 2, you might remember the Apostle Paul says that because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself. The picture is that the unbeliever is storing up for himself wrath and and judgment. And and one day, like a broken dam, that, that wrath is going to be released. Undoubtedly, it will be a terrifying day, a horrifying day. Our passage this morning presents that day in a very, very graphic way, a very memorable way. Now, before we get into chapter 16, it's important that we connect some dots to understand where we're headed and what's going on here. You'll notice, if you have your Bible open, you'll notice that verse 1 refers to the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And and you know that the number seven is, is very popular in Revelation. It's used a lot. There are the, the seven churches In the seven cities of Asia Minor, there are the seven spirits of God. Specifically, though, I want you to think about two things. I want you to think about the seven seals that we looked at in chapters 6, 7, and 8, and the seven trumpets, which we looked at in chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11. Now, if you you can remember this far back, when, when we looked at the seven seals and the seven trumpets, those two things, the seven seals and the seven trumpets, Picture the entire time from the ascension of Christ to his second coming. And and so all of of history during that period, from from the ascension of Jesus, the time he ascended into heaven, until the time he comes again, is pictured for us in the seven seals and the seven trumpets. Now here in chapter 16, we come across the seven bowls. And, And I want to suggest to you that the The seven bowls are somewhat different from the seven seals and the seven trumpets. The the difference is this. Seven bowls of of chapter 16 deal only with what will happen when Jesus Christ returns. Let let me give you an illustration that, that might help you understand the difference. I like sports. It's baseball season, so it's going to be a baseball analogy. Let's say that your favorite team, favorite baseball team, is the Giants. Now, I know Dodger fans over here don't like that. They're already saying, I don't like the Giants. They're my least favorite team. Just just say, for example, that the the Giants are your favorite team. And it's it's getting to the end of the season. The Giants are fighting for a playoff spot. And there's an important game coming up that night. But you already have plans to go to dinner with some friends. You really want to see the game, but, but you also know that you already have previous plans to go to dinner. And so what you do is you record the game so that you can watch it later. 
Well, while you're at dinner, you get a notification on your phone that the Giants just won. Walk-off home run, bottom of the ninth inning, Giants beat whomever they're playing. Game's over. Now, when you get home from that dinner, you can do one of two things. You can either go back and watch the entire game all over again, or you can just go to the very end and and watch the walk-off home run. Here's the point. The seven seals and the seven trumpets are like watching the whole game. Seven bowls are like watching the walk-off home run. So that's what we have here. In other words, the, the, the seven seals and the seven trumpets cover that entire period from the ascension to the second coming, but the seven bowls only cover the end, what happens when Jesus comes on the day of judgment. That's what we find here in Revelation chapter 16. It's like, it's like John takes his camera and, and he zooms in on the end. He, he focuses no longer on the big picture between the ascension and the second coming. Now he zooms in, he zeroes in on what it's going to be like on that terrifying day for the unbeliever when the Lord Jesus returns to this earth. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, this passage has significance for every single person in this room. I would assume that the vast majority of people in this room are true believers in Christ. You confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You you love him. You want to serve him. You want to train your children to serve and love him. And for you, as we work our way through this passage, I I pray that, that you would leave here this morning saying, Lord, I am profoundly thankful for what you've done for me. I am profoundly thankful for the Lord Jesus and that he has saved me from my sins. He has brought me into a right relationship with you. And and Lord, I am profoundly thankful that I will never, ever, ever experience the awfulness of that day. I, I pray that that's what this chapter causes you to say. At the same time, though, I cannot assume that everyone here is a believer in Christ. Jesus said very pointedly that there would be tares among the wheat. The Bible says that, that not everyone who names the name of Christ is a true believer. Sitting in a church no more makes you a Christian then sitting in a garage makes you a car. And so there is the, the, the possibility that there are those this morning, either here or watching, who do not have a saving relationship with Christ. And as we make our way through this chapter, I pray that it would cause you to come face to face with the fact that you are not ready for that day. That if that day were to come with the, with the present state of your soul, not trusting in Christ, not knowing him as Lord and Savior, if that day were to come, you would be swept away in the judgment. I pray that if that's you, that this morning the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, would cause you to bow your knee to Christ to confess your sin, to confess your hopeless condition, to confess that you are not ready to meet him and that you would come to believe in the Lord Jesus as your Savior. So this chapter is for all of us this morning. 
So here we go. Maybe the most intense scene in the entire book of Revelation. We're going to split the seven bowls into two parts. First of all, we're going to look at bowls one, two, three, four, and five, and then we're going to look at bowls six and seven. I'm going to run through the the first five bowls pretty quickly, and then I'm going to ask a couple of questions. The first bowl is found in verse two, and notice what it is. It is harmful and painful sores. Now, now this should make us think of the Old Testament. This should make us think specifically of the, I think it's the sixth plague, where where God sends upon the Egyptians these painful boils. And, And notice, if you have your Bible open, notice upon whom this bowl is poured out, all those who bear the mark of the beast and worship its image. That phrase, those who bear the mark of the beast, is just another way of describing unbelievers. Those who do not know Christ, rather than being marked by God, rather than being sealed by God, they have taken the mark of the dragon, the devil himself. Second bowl is in verse 3. The sea becomes like the blood of a corpse and every living thing in the sea dies. This also is an echo of the plagues. This is the first plague when God turns the Nile River into blood. Third bowl is found in verse 4. The rivers and springs of water become blood. Once again, parallel with the first plague upon Egypt. Fourth bowl is in verse 8. The sun is allowed to scorch people with fire and fierce heat. We're going to pause on this bowl for just a moment. I think we're meant to see a connection with something we're told earlier in Revelation. If you have your Bible, go back for just a moment to chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. And, And notice... Again, there's a, there's a contrast here. There's a contrast between chapter 16 and something in chapter 7. Look at verse 16 and notice what it says about God's people. Notice what it says about you, Christian. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Notice what it says next. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. See the contrast? The wicked will be struck by scorching heat. The righteous will be protected. If you know Psalm 121, you know that Psalm 121 says, The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day. The sun, the sun of of judgment that will scorch the wicked will not touch God's people. Now the fifth bowl, back to chapter 16, verse 10. It says, The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish. Again, an echo of Egypt, an echo of the plagues. This one, the the ninth plague, where where God sends, you remember this, children, God sends a, a darkness upon the Egyptians that is so dark, it's called a darkness that could be felt darkness that could be felt. And so we have painful sores, we have water becoming blood, we have scorching fire and heat, and we have darkness. Now two questions. First of all, should this be taken literally? Is this literally going to happen one day? The the short answer is no. Like much of Revelation, I believe that this is to be taken symbolically. Now this isn't because we don't take the Bible seriously. 
This isn't because we are, are liberals who just twist and turn Scripture to say whatever we want it to say. We say this because this genre of literature, apocalyptic literature, is to be interpreted symbolically. We, we shouldn't pe- picture people with, with literal sores and, and literal blood water and literal scorching heat and literal darkness. These things are symbols. These are symbols, listen, that show us just how severe this day is going to be. I mean, if you went out to the Delta and you saw that the Delta had become blood and and you saw people out there who were walking around with painful boils and sores on their bodies and and people were getting scorched with horrible heat and and people were living in total darkness, If, if that was true, you would go, this is awful. This is horrible. God pictures it this way for us to remind us just how awful that day will be. And and I say to you with with the utmost seriousness and earnestness, if, if you do not know Christ, this day will be awful for you. That's what's being represented. That's what's being symbolized. That's what's being pictured for us here. This is not a 110-degree day in the Central Valley. This is far, far worse than that. This is the day of judgment upon the wicked. So that's the first question. Is this to be taken literally? No, it's it's symbolic of the seriousness of that day. Second question, though, is is what are these bowls designed to teach us? What What are the first five bowls telling us? Four things. Number one, God protects those who are his. God protects those who are his. You'll notice again the first bowl tells us that God's judgment will fall upon those who bear the mark of the beast. The the implication is that God will protect those who are his. Those whom he has marked, those whom he has sealed, those whom he has given the spirit to will be safe from the judgment. The fourth bowl tells us that that God's judgment will be like a scorching heat, but but based on what we're told in Revelation and in Psalm 121, we know that that heat won't touch us. We know that we will be saved from the judgment. Second thing these bowls teach us is that no one will escape this judgment. If you compare what's said here in the second bowl, with what is said back in Revelation chapter 8, you you find something very interesting. In in Revelation chapter 8, the the second trumpet is blown. And in the second trumpet, a a burning mountain is thrown into the sea. And, And a third of the sea becomes blood, a third of the sea. But here in chapter 16, we are told that all of the sea becomes blood. And every living thing in the sea dies. But the point, again, is that no one will escape this final judgment. It will affect every unbeliever. When Jesus Christ returns as the judge, if you are not trusting him, you're not going to be able to hide in a corner somewhere. You're not going to be able to step back so that no one will notice you. You're not going to be able to 
to blend into the background for all those who have inflicted their wickedness upon this earth, for all those who have trampled God's truth and have not repented, for all those who have persecuted the people of God, they're not going to get away with it. Justice one day will come. This past week, I I was reading an article on a website called Open Doors. Open Doors is a a ministry that, that focuses on the persecution that Christians are facing all throughout the world. And it's really eye-opening if, if you ever, I would encourage you, go on Open Doors or, or Voice of the Martyrs or, or one of those websites, magazines, where you can learn really what's going on in our world. And a particular article that I was reading had to do with um, the Congo. Now, interestingly, the, the, the population of the Congo, 91% of the population of Congo confesses to be Christians. And you might think, that sounds like a great place to live. 91% of the population confesses to be a Christian. But that doesn't mean that the people in Congo aren't facing intense persecution. There is a rebel group in Congo called the, the Allied Democratic Forces who are targeting and attacking Christians. Apparently, in the last 13 months, this group has carried out a series of attacks and they have killed almost 400 Christians in 13 months. They have also abducted hundreds of Christians, including a large, large number of young children. Now you read these things and and you say, that's horrible. How can our hearts not ache when we hear this? How can we not grieve at the plight of our fellow believers at what's going on, for example, in the Congo? And yet, the allied democratic forces is not going to get away with this. Our children are being taught in government schools today that all kinds of wicked lifestyles are acceptable. And don't you dare try to stand up against it. Don't you dare try to speak up or we'll cancel you. Our children are being bombarded with this. That the people who are doing this to to young, innocent children are not going to get away with this. That is what we are being told here in this bowl. Judgment is coming. It's coming to the wicked. It's coming to the unrepentant. Third thing that these first five bowls teach us is that God is just and God is righteous. Notice verse 5. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was For you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. We talked about this last week, but this is who God is. God is just. God is holy. God is righteous. Now, now, yes, there is forgiveness for all who come to him through faith in Jesus Christ. But for the unrepentant, God is just. 
and justice is coming. In fact, it's, it's quite graphic here, isn't it? We're, we're told that those who have shed the blood of the martyrs and the prophets will be forced to drink their own blood. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah 49. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. God is just. God is holy. He must punish sin. Now, we're thankful as Christians that he punished our sin in his son so that we will not face his justice. This is who God is. And fourth, the five, first five bowls show us that the unbeliever hardens himself in his sin. Left to himself, given over to himself, the unbeliever hardens his heart. He hardens himself in his sin. Notice how the wicked respond to the judgment. They they don't cry out in repentance over their sin. They they don't say, God, have mercy to us. Verse 9, they did not repent and give God glory. Verse 11, they cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores and that they did not repent of their sins. Back in chapters 8 through 11, We looked at the seven trumpets, and and you might remember me telling you that the seven trumpets have been blowing all throughout history. All throughout history, in in earthquakes and wars and famines and destruction, God has been blowing a trumpet in a sense. He's been warning. The day of great judgment is coming. Flee to Christ. But many refuse to listen. Many refuse to repent. Many harden their hearts when these trumpets are being blown. They continue on in their sin. Revelation 9 verse 20 says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. That's unbelieving man if left to himself. He will not repent. And here in chapter 16 is John takes his camera and and he zooms in on the final day. We see the same thing. We, We see that those who are hardened in their sin curse God and they refuse to repent. I pray that that's not you. Pray that you hear the trumpets, that you heed the warning of the trumpets before it's too late because one day that seventh trumpet will blow and then it will be too late. Do not wait till you're older. Do not wait till you're less busy. Do not wait until your life is in order. Come now before it is too late. We now move to bowl six and seven. There's a shift somewhat at this point. The focus is now on this final battle that we know as Armageddon. I believe this is the only time this word is used in the entire Bible, Armageddon. Now, throughout the years, there have been a whole lot of different views as to what this battle is. There are, there are those who say that this will be a literal military battle one day. That There will be planes and tanks and machine guns and bombs as as, as people war against God and against God's people. I, I, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but Revelation is apocalyptic literature. 
It's to be viewed typically symbolically. It's not always to be taken literally, and I think that's the case here. This is not a literal battle. This is, this is symbolic of the fact that, that one day the spiritual battle will come to an end. And, and I want to show you why I say that. Armageddon means the Mount of Megiddo, M-E-G-I-D-D-O. Megiddo was located in Israel, and and Megiddo in the Old Testament was the site of a number of of important military battles. One example of this is is found in the book of Judges. If, If you know anything about the book of Judges, you know that Judges is this constant cycle. God's people fall into sin. God's people are, are disciplined by God. God's people cry out in repentance. God sends a deliverer. He delivers them, and then the whole cycle goes on and on again. Uh, Judges is, is all about Israel being harassed by their enemies. And, and in chapter 5, children, you've heard of the Canaanites before. The Canaanites were, were going to seek to destroy God's people, to attack them and destroy Israel. And things looked very bleak, very dark. Israel was greatly outnumbered. Uh, Israel had lousy weaponry compared to the Canaanites. I mean, it looked, it looked awful. Horrible situation. But, but God dramatically and, and powerfully intervenes and he rescues his people. And in Judges chapter 5, verse 19, we read this. The kings came. They fought. They fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh, By the waters of Megiddo. Notice that reference to Megiddo. Megiddo is is a reminder of how God rescued his people against seemingly impossible odds. And and so based on what we know about Megiddo from the Old Testament, and and based on the the fact that we believe and know that Revelation is, is to be understood symbolically, Here's what Armageddon is. Armageddon is not a literal war that will take place at the end of a seven-year tribulation period. Armageddon is symbolic of the final battle between good and evil. In fact, you'll notice who's referred to here. You have the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet in verse 13, and you have demonic spirits in verse 14. This This is Ephesians 6, isn't it? This is a spiritual battle, and I appreciate what William Hendrickson says about Armageddon. He says, Armageddon is a symbol of every battle in which when a need is greatest and believers are oppressed, the Lord suddenly reveals his power and defeats his enemies. I think this is what we're being told here. We may feel in in 2023, we may feel in the year in which we live that The odds are against us. The odds are against the church. Evil seems to be winning. The culture seems to be getting worse. From a human perspective, it it doesn't look good, does it? It's like Israel in the book of Judges. Here come the Canaanites. They got more people, better weapons. We're doomed. It may look like that to us today. I'll give you one example. Uh, Back in 2018, the United Nations published a document that is entitled The International Technical Guidance on Sexuality Education. 
And the goal of the United Nations in this document was, and I quote from this document, to equip children to develop sexual relationships and to ensure the protection of our children's sexual rights all throughout their lives. This document seeks to go around the authority of the parents. This document seeks to to strip any authority, any rights that parents might have with their children. And this document seeks to teach children, quote, the skills they need to form relationships with sexual partners. That was 2018, that's five years ago. Things have gotten worse. There's more that's come out from the United Nations in terms of the sexualization of our children. And I'll be honest with you, a lot of this stuff I can't even tell you in this audience. It's horrifying. And that's just one example. It doesn't look good. It looks like the enemy is too powerful. Now, one thing is that we shouldn't be cowering in a corner doing nothing. We shouldn't say, well, there's nothing we can do. The Titanic is sinking. Let's just wait for Jesus to return. That's not being faithful. We are called to proclaim the truth. We are called to stand up for righteousness. We are called to be salt and light in this very, very dark culture. The second thing is that as we do that, as we seek to be the church in the world, We can know, as Revelation tells us, that on that final day, there's going to be a final battle. It's going to be a battle between good and evil against the spiritual forces of evil, as Paul says in Ephesians 6. And and when we get to the seventh bowl, we see that the battle gets underway. And, and, And we're going to look at this final battle in more detail in the chapters to come. But for now... What we're being told here is that the world as we know it will be brought to an end. Notice the end of the chapter. The islands flee away. The mountains are no more. 100-pound hailstones are falling from heaven. God's judgment has come. It's come. What do you do with that? How do you respond to that? You remember, I hope, that when we did our little series on covenant theology, I said to you, it's one thing to to know covenant theology, and that's important. It's one thing to know doctrine. But it's another thing to live it out. If, If all we do is come here and stuff our heads, what good is that? If I have all knowledge, Paul says, but but do not have love, I am nothing. If, if I know all of this doctrine and all of this content and all of this truth, but I am unchanged, what good is that? The reality is that judgment is coming. What do we do with that? On December 26, 9.1 magnitude earthquake struck the west coast of Indonesia. Many of you remember this. That earthquake was immediately followed by a massive tsunami with waves up to 100 feet high. 
Children, imagine you, you've been to the ocean before, right? And, and you, you stand on the beach and you watch the waves. Maybe you get in the water a little bit. Waves hit you. They're not very big. Imagine 100-foot high waves. This top of the church is 45 feet. Double that and add 10 feet. 100-foot high waves of water. It was so devastating that 225,000 people in 14 different countries were killed. It was one of the deadliest natural disasters in human history. That pales in comparison to the final day when the dam of God's wrath is taken away and the wrath and the justice of God is unleashed upon all who reject Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now, brothers and sisters, you will not be caught up in the tsunami of God's wrath. That tsunami will not touch you because Jesus took the tsunami for you. He took the wrath that we deserve so that when that dam is taken away and when that wrath is unleashed, it will not strike us because of God's saving grace and mercy to us. Now, we don't know when this day will come, but we do know that it will come. Are you prepared for that day? Are you prepared for that day? Well, for those of us who are prepared, we can rejoice this morning that, that justice one day will be served. All wrongs will be made right. God's people and God's truth and God's cause will be vindicated. And the wicked will be judged. As we wait for that day, we, we don't sit idly by and do nothing. We, we take whatever time that the Lord has given to us, and we take the, the gifts and the talents that he has given to us, and we stand against unrighteousness. We stand for truth. We work diligently for his kingdom. And we spread the good news that Jesus Christ saves from the wrath to come. We leave here this morning with joy because that wrath will never touch us. But we also leave here this morning with a calling, a calling to stand for righteousness, and to proclaim the truth, and to declare that there is hope in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that we could hear from your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are so kind and gracious to us. And Lord, as we think of that final day, we rejoice that we will not be struck with the tsunami of your wrath because Jesus took it for us. 
Lord, help us now to leave here and go out and to stand for what is right, to proclaim truth, and to declare as well that in Jesus Christ there is hope and there is freedom and there is safety from the wrath that will one day come. We thank you that you have been so merciful to us. We give you thanks in Jesus' name.